Welcome back to The Word and the Glass. I am grateful that you've chosen to share some of your valuable time with us today. We are so blessed by all the kind words and by the reception that we have received thus far in this journey. Glory to God. We are encouraged to see what God has been doing and excited to see what he has for us going forward. Today marks the first episode in our From the Pulpit to the Podcast series, wherein Stefan will bring his sermons to the studio. I truly believe that this is going to be a great addition to the Word and the Glass, and pray that you are just as edified by these teachings as we here at Strasburg Baptist Church are. So, going forward, we will have an episode dedicated to roundtable discussion, followed by a From the Pulpit to the Podcast hand-picked sermon by Stefan. Wash, rinse, repeat. God really is doing some amazing things here at The Word in the Glass, and hopefully I will be able to share those with you soon. Make sure you go follow us at The Word and the Glass Podcast on Instagram to keep up with everything that we've got going on. And with that, let's hear from Stefan. Progressive Covenantalism, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. During the 2nd century AD, a heresy arose called Marcionism. The leader of Marcionism was, of course, a man named Marcion. And what Marcion did was he questioned the validity of the Christian scriptures of the Bible. Most significantly, Marcion taught that God, the God of the Old Testament, was different from the God of the New Testament. And therefore, the Old Testament scriptures were not valid since Marcion saw them as contradicting the New Testament scriptures. What Marcion failed to understand was the way in which Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament requirements. He neglected the countless Old Testament references in the New Testament, 
and how those references explained how the new covenant relates to the old covenant in light of the gospel. The danger we see in Marcionism comes from not understanding how the old covenant and the new covenant are connected. And so it's for this reason that we are going to examine this relationship between the covenants. And by doing so, hopefully, we can correctly understand texts like this one in Genesis chapter 17. Hopefully we can understand it in light of the full work of God revealed to us in Scripture. So right now, let's look back to Genesis chapter 17, because I want us to see clearly the tension that arises when we read chapter 17 in light of what we read in chapter 15 about the Abrahamic covenant. And then I want us to see if a study of covenant theology can't resolve that tension for us. So right off the bat, when we look at Genesis chapter 17, we are given a time frame. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old. In chapter 16, we see that at the age of 86, Abram took Hagar as his wife. She then gave birth to a son whom they named Ishmael. But here in chapter 17, we are told that Abram is 99 years old which would make Ishmael 13, which is significant because according to Jewish tradition, age 13 is when a boy is considered a man. He's then able to own property, get married, and receive an inheritance. What inheritance is in question here? The blessing of the Lord, right? The covenant promises of God. And in verse 18, we see this is clearly on Abraham's mind. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It has come time to give Ishmael his inheritance, but it is not the will of God that he should receive the covenant and the promises. And thus God responds to Abraham in verse 19 by saying, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Isaac, the son of Sarah, the child of promise, will receive God's covenant. As for Ishmael, we are told that he will be blessed and made into a great nation, but the covenant will nevertheless be with Isaac. I remind you that Isaac has yet to be conceived, let alone born. So you can imagine the strain this response from God had on Abram. He is 99 years old. His entire life, he has been reminded that he has no children, no heir. Every time someone said his name, think about how difficult it would be to have the name Abram, which means father of many, and yet have no descendants. Imagine every time he introduces himself, hi, I'm Abram, the father of many, and people would respond, oh, congratulations, how many do you have? He would have to say, well, none, actually. This is just one of those things that surely happened over and over again. But now, God makes it seemingly even worse. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And with that promise comes a new name, Abraham, father of many nations. And you can almost feel the fear in Abraham's mind as he pleads with God to bless Ishmael. He's 99 years old, after all. Certainly, Ishmael is the only hope he has to live up to his name. But no, God promises another son. And then, to exercise Abraham's faith a bit more, God makes another covenant with him. 
one that would take great faith to follow. That is the covenant of circumcision. Consider this. If your blessing and the blessing of your descendants is tied to reproduction, as Abraham's is, right? You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Having children and your children having children is essential. If that is your blessing and your covenant, the last thing you would want to do is to put the reproduction of your people in jeopardy. But that's exactly what circumcision does. I won't pursue that topic any further, except to point out that medical practices 4,000 years ago were not as they are today. So this would certainly have seemed counterintuitive for Abraham. But that's the point. This is the sign of the covenant. And it's meant to exercise Abraham's faith and the faith of his descendants by reminding them that it wasn't by the flesh that they were saved. No, it was by the working of God through his promises. We said that circumcision was the covenant sign, not necessarily the covenant itself. What covenant is circumcision a sign of? Well, we have to look back at Genesis chapter 17, this time in verse 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And again, Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 11 and 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, we read about the unconditional covenant of God, right? God walking between the divided animals while Abraham was asleep. God placing all the covenant stipulations then upon himself. But now, in chapter 17, we are told that anyone who does not obey will be cut off from the people of God. This covenant has conditions. It is possible then for people to be cut off, and yet the promises are the same. Genesis 17, verses 6 through 8. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. These are all now conditional promises. If they obey, they will be a great nation. If they obey they will receive the land. If they obey, Yahweh will be their God. How do we understand the tension between these two covenants? On the one hand, we have a covenant of grace, completely unconditional. On the other hand, we have a covenant of works, which has conditions. Did Moses just fall asleep between chapter 15 and 17 and forget whether the covenant was actually conditional or unconditional? Of course not. Moses wrote exactly what God revealed to him. And what God revealed to him 
was two covenants, separate but connected. If we had a visual outline, what we would see would be two lines leading to Christ, and then after Christ, we would see one line. The first two lines start with creation, or more specifically, the first three chapters of Genesis, and they continue until the death and resurrection of Jesus. The top line is the promise of grace, or what we call the covenant of grace. The bottom line is the requirement of the law, or the covenant of works, the old covenant. Now, if we make the connection to Genesis 15 through 17, what we see is that Genesis 15 represents the covenant of grace, and that Genesis 17 represents the covenant of works. Genesis 16, then, as explained by Galatians chapter 4, shows us two covenants, one with Sarai and one with Hagar. Sarai being the covenant of grace, and Hagar representing the covenant of works. The covenant of grace has been promised, but not accomplished. It will be accomplished in the work of Christ, and becomes what we refer to as the new covenant. The old covenant, then, is fulfilled in Christ. Now this is where the progressive part of progressive covenantalism comes in. I said that both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace begin in the first three chapters of Genesis. If you know how progressive revelation works, then you'll understand that we are gradually given information over time. And so, in the beginning, we are given two principles. We are first shown the covenant of works in Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. When it says, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is a law, a condition that has been placed upon man by God. If he obeys, he will enjoy eternal existence with God. If he disobeys, he will die. With this, we see the covenant of works or the Old Covenant initiated. From this point on, we see the covenant of works progressively established. In Genesis 2, the command is simply, do not eat. But further aspects are added as redemptive history progresses. The best example for us right now comes from Genesis 17 and the covenant of circumcision. But with that, we could also discuss the Ten Commandments or the other 603 Old Covenant laws. We can add the festival requirements to that list, the ceremonial commands, not to mention the regulations for kings, prophets, and priests. Even the temple and the sacrificial system can be added. All these things were to be observed and obeyed. But what each one of these actually does is it points to what the perfect Savior of man would need to be. And as we know, they point to Jesus and who he was. And once we understand that, then we can see that as God is progressively establishing this covenant of works in the Old Testament, he is progressively revealing, simultaneously, his plan to fulfill those very requirements himself. To put it another way, the covenant of grace depends on God himself satisfying the covenant of works. That's why Abraham is justified by faith in Genesis 15 and not by works in Genesis 17, because he trusted that God would keep his promises, that God would be his savior. And so, I want to be clear here. We see Abram receiving commands in Genesis 17, but Abram is not saved by works of the law. 
And he does not secure the eternal promises of God through the covenant of works. Galatians 2.16 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one in the history of the world has been justified by works of the law. So what we are shown is that the covenant of works is progressively established to expose our inability and to point us to the perfect Savior. It's for this reason that when Christ was born, he was born under the law. Why? So that he might satisfy the legal requirements and therein fulfill the conditions of the covenant of works. That is Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This then brings us to the covenant of grace. By fulfilling the requirements of the old covenant, of the covenant of works, Christ then acquires all the conditional old covenant promises for himself. He becomes the true offspring and heir of Abraham. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Just as we saw him promise in Genesis 15, God took the conditions upon himself by becoming a man and fulfilling the old covenant demands. R.C. Sproul says it this way, So the purpose of grace is to provide a Savior who does the works Adam never did, so that the Lord can reckon us as covenant keepers via the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What this means is that now, anyone united to Jesus by grace through faith is a fellow heir of the promises. Galatians 3 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. And what's amazing is that the promises that we acquire in Jesus aren't simply the same promises offered in the old covenant, but better promises, a better land, a better nation, better blessings, promises that were shadowed by the old covenant, but revealed in the new covenant, as Hebrews 8 verse 6 tells us. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So, what we have seen from the beginning is a covenant of works progressively established, and simultaneously a covenant of grace 
progressively revealed. Both of those have their culmination in Christ. Because it is Jesus, born under the old covenant of works, who fulfills all the requirements and obtains all the promises. He then institutes the new covenant of grace, where he offers better promises to those who are granted faith, both retrospectively to those Old Testament believers who looked forward to his coming, and to the church who looks back on the completed work of the gospel. I acknowledge that that is a lot to process, and that you may need to study the topic a few more times before all the dots are connected. But if there is one thing you take away from this, let it be the realization that you are incapable of fulfilling the old covenant of works on your own. You need Jesus to do it for you. Apart from the grace of God, you and I would be slaves to the legal requirements demanded in the old covenant, bound for failure and for judgment. R.C. Sproul echoes this, saying, Christ's work of active obedience is absolutely essential to the justification of anyone. Without Christ's active obedience to the covenant of works, there is no reason for imputation. There is no ground for justification. Sproul here is just stating the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, when he writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, if you are trying to earn God's favor, maybe you think that attending church earns God's favor. Maybe you think that giving to charity earns God's favor. Maybe you think that reading your Bible earns God's favor. Maybe you think that political engagement earns you God's favor. If so, you are putting the cart before the horse, as they say. You've mixed up the cause and the effect. If you are a Christian, you have earned God's favor by grace and grace alone. And then our obedience to the commands of Christ, become our response to his grace. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 13 through 26. This will be our final text, and it relates directly to Genesis 17 and the command of circumcision. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I probably need to point out that Paul says circumcision itself is nothing. It's not as if those who have been circumcised are therefore not saved. The issue is with those who, as Paul identifies in verse 4, seek to be justified by the law or by circumcision. This is why he says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith. What all that means is, if you have experienced the freedom available in Christ, freedom from bondage to the law, freedom from the covenant of works, then you should walk in the Spirit. And as Paul says, those who walk in the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh. They will instead exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These personal qualities are not a new law to be obeyed for salvation, as if they are a replacement for faith. Instead, they are, as we said, a result of faith. As you pursue Christ in faith through the means of grace, these character traits will be produced by the Holy Spirit within you. This is the practical implication of the new covenant in the Christian life. And that topic is a whole nother sermon in itself. But now, by way of closing exhortation, I want to point out to you that this way of progressively ordering the covenants, and consequently this way of reading the Bible, becomes essentially Christocentric. The way I've laid this out for you is Christ-centered, and therefore I hope Christ-exalting. Jesus is the culmination of both the Law and the Prophets. Everything in Scripture points us to Him. From Genesis to Revelation, Christ is the epicenter. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the arbiter of grace. He is the founder of the new covenant and the cornerstone of the church. Why should I sorrow anymore? I trust to say you're slain and safe beneath the sheltering cross unmoved. I shall remain. Let Satan and this world now rage, you now allure. The promises in Christ are made immutable and sure. The oath infallible is now my spirit's trust. I know that he who spoke the word is faithful, true and just. 
He'll bring me on my way unto my journey's end. He'll be my Father and my God, my Savior and my friend. Nothing on this earth near, nor out in the universe far. No created thing could ever separate. Or tear us apart. He who promised is faithful, for he has saved. So who could reverse it? I could never, no, never doubt his promises. So all my doubts and fears shall hold. And every mournful night of tears be turned to joyous day. Oh, there.